0: Hey, we're in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That's what we're walking through. That's our text. You guys might know this. You might not know this, but we are walking through this book of the Bible, just chapter by chapter, verse by verse. You guys know that earlier this year, we walked through the seven churches of Revelation. We looked at the seven different churches Jesus spoke to in Revelation 2 and 3. We talked about just what does a biblically healthy church look like? Like, why does the church exist? We did a five-week series called A Jesus Church, and right now, we're, we're studying the book of Second Corinthians, and we're, like, really walking through it. Uh, my hope is as we unfold the Word of God, as we, like unpack it, that, like, the Word of God would come alive to you, that maybe you've never gone through a book of the Bible chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but that you just take it in, like, soak it in. There is so much here, and I'm excited to see how the Lord's going to use this just to, to form our church. Uh, we talked about how this year is a year of spiritual health for us, We want to have like a year of spiritual health, like build off that. And so 2 Corinthians is really a book that shows us a new way to live, a new way to do life, how you and I are new creations in Christ. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we have this? How do we navigate this this way of following Jesus? And so this shows us a new way to live. Now, if you've been with us, just a little review, we did chapter four last week, verse one through six. And as we walk through this, uh, Paul began by saying, hey, we don't lose heart because of the ministry we have. He begins with, we don't lose heart, and today we'll see he bookends it with, we don't lose heart. So you see the big heart of, his, of this text for us today is not to lose heart, like not to give up, not to cave in. So don't lose heart. And he says, because of this ministry— and then last week, he talked about how Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers, how there's different myths or narratives around the gospel of Jesus. And then he also ended with just talking about the message of the gospel. What is the gospel? Now, he builds off of that, and so we're going to pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 18. That's our text today. As we walk through this, kind of the big picture today and what Paul is going to talk about is how you and I have this eternal weight of glory, eternal weight weight of glory. This is the, the title today. If You're like, what does that mean? We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it. But Paul is basically showing us these, Christ, these paradoxes we have in our Christian life. So paradoxes seem to contradict what in reality they complement. And Paul is going to show us that there's power through weakness, life through death, renewal through decay. He's going to kind of walk us through how in the Christian life there seems to be the sense of loss— Like we're weak, but where we're weak, then there's the power. Where there's death, then there's life. When there's decay, then there's true renewal and vitality in life. And so this is what Paul is walking us through, kind of these different paradoxes we have in our Christian life. So let's just read this. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 through 18. We're going to read this text as a whole. There is so much here. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I was very tempted to, like, break this one message into, like, four messages. And you'll see why. And I'm not just saying that. There's just so much here. So let's just read. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 is where we pick up. who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Listen, so death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporal. But the things that are unseen are eternal." Like I said, I feel like every verse des- deserves its own sermon. I mean, there's so much here. And we just want to slowly break this down. In case you got lost, like, what was Paul even talking about? Don't worry, we're going to break it down. But, but my hope today is we can basically do what Paul described. How can we turn our eyes not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen? Even though our outward man is wasting away, is decaying, our inward man is being renewed day by day. And I really do hope we, we do more than study this. I hope you experience this. I hope your inward man's renewed. I hope you're encouraged today. And I hope that you can look to the things that are unseen, that we can live for the eternal things, the eternal weight of glory. Amen? Let's just pray and just ask the Lord to speak to us. Father, we thank you so much for this time, for your word. God, we just ask that I know that all of us, it's, it's very easy for our, our week to still kind of be fresh in our minds. God, help us just turn off our phones, those distractions, Help us turn off things that are just taking place of you in our life, in our minds, in our heart. God, we just ask that you would speak to us right now through your words, that, Jesus, you would make your your word known to us, that, God, we could truly experience this. We thank you, God, that even though we're, we're pressed down, we're not crushed, that even though it's difficult, it's not over. And so, Lord, we ask that you just speak and move in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. For years, a family in New Jersey, the Landows, uh, had a picture in their grandparents' dining room that used to freak them out. Uh, there's these three little boys that go to their their grandparents' house every year. And in the dining room, there's this picture of, of like two men trying to basically revive a third person who's like passed out. And they have like smelling salts to try to wake them up. And it's just a creepy old painting. And so years ago, after their, their grandparents passed away, went to their parents, their parents passed away in 2010. And, and so they inherited this, this painting. And they're like, oh, this is the painting we hate. It freaks us out. So they thought, you know, we know the grandparents liked it. We know it must be old. Let's just put it up for auction. So they got someone to come, you know, see how much the painting was worth. The person's like, it's probably worth 500 bucks. We'll put it in one of our, like, you know, auctions for paintings that we have. And so little did they know, when they threw that painting in the auction, and they thought they'd maybe get 500 bucks for it, someone recognized that painting, and it was one of five paintings that a guy named Rembrandt did uh, back in, like, 1624. Is one of five paintings that went missing. Uh, two went missing, or there's three today, now there's four, but people recognize this and go, that is one of the lost paintings of Rembrandt. It's called The Unconscious Patient. We have a picture. And this is the picture they would see every year. It freaked them out. It creeped them out. They hated it. And they, they put it for auction. During the auction, they saw it went from 500 bucks, like 5,000, 10,000. And then people started bidding higher and higher because a couple more people started recognizing it. Long story short, this painting went for around 1.1 million dollars. The brothers thought they'd make 500 bucks, but they realized this is a Rembrandt. Like, this is a masterpiece. This is something he did in his teens, supposedly. And like I said, this this is one of five paintings. He did five paintings on the senses. This is the sense of smell. And actually, there's one painting that's still missing, the sense of taste. So if maybe your grandparents have an old picture of, t- they all are like the same, of like three people and just kind of creepy, it might be a million dollar painting. Uh, I mean, this happens all the time. Maybe you hear stories of this, where things that like are priceless, priceless treasures, priceless valuables, whatever it might be, are kind of like in random locations. Or you have no idea it's worth what it's worth. Or it's like in a random box and you're like, why is this priceless, this priceless thing in like some random box? There's a guy named uh, Sir Oliver Franks. He was the head of, of an Oxford college and became actually the ambassador from the UK to America right after World War II. And he writes about how he used to send very private and classified information from the UK to America, America back to the UK. And he writes about how when he really wanted to get the most important and classified information across the pond Across America, he would actually just send it through a normal mail, like through normal like a normal envelope. He put the most important classified information just in the general mail. He normally had like diplomatic bags that he'd send with someone, like a security guard, to overseas. But the most important things he didn't want to send with anyone. He just put it in a regular envelope. Right, the most important thing in a regular envelope. Here is the idea, biblically speaking. You and I have, as Paul says, this priceless treasure in just jars of clay. Like, we have this priceless treasure of the gospel, of the new covenant, of grace, of the Holy Spirit, not in some beautiful bag, not in some beautiful spot, but like in us. In this, this you could say, this jar of clay. This empty, this broken vessel. This vessel. And that's the language Paul uses, that so often God puts the, uh, the extraordinary into the ordinary. And this is what Paul is describing here in Second Corinthians chapter 4. He's saying the most priceless treasure, the new covenant, the spirit of God, the grace of God is placed in you and I. And here's what we're looking at, because Paul loves to kind of show these different paradoxes in the Christian life. And so as we walk through this text, the first one that we'll see again is this, power through weakness, life through death, speaking through believing, and lastly, renewal through decay. So, these are the four points today. Here's how we're going to break down our text today. Number one, we're going to see power through weakness. Let's just, again, read verse 7. Here's what Paul says. Verse 7. Paul says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Power through weakness. Again, think about placing, like, the hope Diamond, like an incredibly precious, you know, jewel it's like a garbage bag, right? This is what he's saying. He's saying, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Now, when I read jars of clay, I can't help but think of the Christian 90s band, Jars of Clay. So I just have to give a little shout out really quick to them. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's good for you. Um, but anyways, he goes, we have this treasure in these jars of clay, in these, in these empty vessels, another translation put it. God puts his priceless treasure in, in us, and they're like, what is he talking about? What is this? This is very interesting, right? The, the word for like jars of clay or empty vessels, it's just like this cheap, you know, uh, you could say, this cheap pottery that basically everyone had. It was commonplace. It was pretty ordinary. There's nothing profound about it, nothing extraordinary about it. It's just pretty common. The idea, obviously, for us is it's, so, it's not so much about the messenger as much as, as much as it's about the message. It's not about the, the packaging. It's about what's in the package. It's not about the person communicating or preaching. Remember what Paul said last week. He goes, the message is not of us. It's not about us. It's about Jesus. It has nothing to do with the package, but everything to do with what's in it. And he's saying, we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the power might not be of us, but of God. And, and the, really the, the big takeaway for you and I is to see that. Like, what is this treasure that is in us? He refers back to this in chapter three, because if you're like, what is this treasure? Remember, this is the new covenant that we have. It's so much better than what Moses had, according to chapter three. You and I have this new covenant of grace with God. Chapter three, verse 17, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. This treasure that's in us is the spirit of God, the grace of God, the fact that anyone and everyone can have unique access to God through the person of Jesus, that we have this new covenant ministry that is far better than what we came out of. He says, this treasure, this treasure of grace, this treasure of the spirit, this treasure of the power of God. Remember verse six, he says that the, the face, the light of the face of Jesus shines into your hearts. This treasure is in us. God loves to put the extraordinary into the ordinary. This is one of those things I, I want us to take to heart. It's so, God said, what you have in you is this, this priceless treasure. It's so valuable. And I love how God disguises it and hides it in us. You know, these, these broken pots, you could say, these empty vessels. It's just interesting how he puts it. Listen, we are to focus on the treasure, obviously, and not the vessel. We're to focus what's in it, but not, but not the vessel itself. There's a, there's a pastor writer named Sam Storms, and he kind of pulled some big points from this, but he, he, he said it this way. He says, if the treasure were in a chest laden with gold and covered with precious jewels, people might focus on the container and ignore the contents. He said, human weakness presents no barriers to God's purpose. See, this is what I want us to see. You know, Hudson Taylor, he was a missionary that, you know, went over to China and really got the, got the gospel to go east. He ended up really leading thousands, if not millions, after his life to, to Christ. And here's what he said. He says, All of God's giants have been weak men and women who did things for God because they reckoned on him being with them. That they, they're weak, they did great things because they reckoned on him being with them. Has nothing to do with the vessel, but everything to do with the treasure in the vessel. You see, here's what I want to just point out today. I really do believe that the Lord is looking for empty vessels to fill his treasure with. What do I mean by treasure? His spirit with, his grace with. I really do believe that God is looking for people to say, I want to put my spirit within you. Like, I I want to fill you with the grace of God. I really do believe we serve a God who looks to find empty vessels, and we say, God, fill me. God, use me. Here I'm here I am like send me and God is looking for people empty vessels where he can hide his glorious treasure of the gospel of grace the holy spirit residing in us and I think my question is just are you empty are you willing are you willing to come to jesus and say hey god empty me i want to come to you not with what i've got but i want to come to you empty-handed like you fill me you know i think one of the best stories of this that that kind of clarifies this point is in second kings chapter four so i actually want to turn there would you turn with me to second kings four because i want you to read this story and kind of get the big picture second kings chapter four i think we get this this analogy of just god filling uh, empty vessels second kings four Listen to this story. It's fascinating to me. It's prophetic to me. I think there's a bigger picture in this story. 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. Let's just read it, verse 1 through 7. It says, The wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha. And so this widow, she says, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, uh, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors. These empty uh, pots, these jars of clay. Borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, And not too few, meaning gather a lot. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there's not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts and you and your sons can live on the rest. I want you to see this story. Uh, Elisha, a prophet of God, one of his like fellow prophets, one of his servants died. This widow goes, our, 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 our husband, like my husband, their father is dead. We have no way to pay our bills. They're going to take my sons to be their slaves. What should we do? And I love this question. He's like, what do you have? That's a question a lot of times the Bible asks, like, what do you have? God just says, I can take the little you have and I can multiply it. Like, what do you have? Just give me what you have. I'll take the little, I'll multiply it. She goes, I just have a jar of oil. That's all I got. He goes, okay, great. Go around to all of your neighbors and get as many empty vessels as you can. As many empty vessels as you can. And then take that oil and just fill each pot. And just keep filling and filling and filling. It's just like Jesus multiplying the fish and the bread. It's like, just fill the pot. Watch it get full. And so the sons are bringing her the empty vessels and she's filling and filling. And it says, and then when there were no more vessels, the oil ceased. When there's no more vessels, that's when the oil stopped. I want you to see this. That God is just looking for empty vessels to fill with his spirit. Oil in the scriptures has always been a picture or a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And I love this analogy of God just going, of Elijah saying this, I think it's for you and I saying, I just need some empty vessels that I can pour oil into. As long as there's empty vessels, the oil will flow. Once there was no more empty vessels, the oil ceased. And I want us to hear that. I think as long as there are believers willing and ready to say, God, here I am, I'm empty. Fill me. Fill me with your spirit. I want to be used by you. Noticing You had to bring empty vessels. They needed to be empty, not already full or half full, empty vessels saying, God, I'm just bringing you what I got, me. It's nothing, empty, fill me. And Paul is saying the same idea going, we have this treasure, this treasure of this new covenant gospel, the spirit of God that brings us freedom. We have this treasure in these jars of clay. Why? So the power may be of God and not of us. So when people look at you and they say, What is different about your life that they glorify God and not you? When they go, wait a second, how is this person, how is their life, like, I know you, I used to know you, like, what is different about you? And you can say, hey, listen, it is Jesus in me. The idea is, like Jesus said in Matthew 5, like, when men see your good works, they glorify your Father in heaven. Church, listen, Jesus is looking for empty vessels to fill with his treasure, to fill with his spirit. I really do believe there's power through weakness. That once we can admit our... Vol- I love that the Bible compares us to jars of clay. Like, we're fragile. We're these jars of clay that can be easily broken. You think about, it's not really costly, just a jar of clay. And God's like, but the treasure lies within you. That's where the treasure is. The gospel within you the spirit within you. This is what you and I must see. Listen, God is always looking for empty vessels or empty pots to fill his treasure with. He's always looking for that. Paul goes on to say this idea of power through weakness. Look at verse 8 with me. Would you look at verse 8? Paul keeps going. He says, we, and it's like a play on words. Listen, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. I, I love this about Paul. Do you, do you hear this language? Like, I, I can so relate to this. I don't know if you feel like you relate to these verses. He's like, you know what? We're persecuted, but we're not destroyed. You know, we're, we're perplexed, but we're not in despair. He's like, we're being crushed, but we're not destroyed. Like, I want you to see this about Paul. Paul was like a realist, and you could say maybe an optimist in some ways. Paul's not trying to minimize what he's suffering. Like, Paul's going through it. Paul's like, listen, we're pressed down on every side. We're, 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 we're perplexed here. This has been difficult. Like, we're afflicted. Paul's not ignoring the pain he's walking through, but he also has this really unique hope. Like, Paul's not naive, but he has hope. I think sometimes as Christians, maybe there's this idea that we need to be naive to our suffering. Like, no, suffering is a reality. Like, it's painful. It's going to happen. Like, he goes, we're pressed down. He uses strong language. Like, we're really, we're really just, like, struggling here, but we're not destroyed. Like, Paul's not naive, but he's also hopeless, or he has hope. He's not hopeless. I love this about him, that he's not naive, but he also has hope within him. Like, that is so beautiful to me that as Christians, we can acknowledge the pain and suffering around us, but we realize it's not over yet. Like, though it is difficult, it's not over. Though you go, this is really hard right now, it's not over. I might be pressed down, but I'm not crushed. This might be difficult, but it's not over. In reality, it's finished. I can boast and rest in the finished work of the cross, even though this is extremely difficult for me right now. You know, I love this. I've used this quote before, but G.K. Chesterton, like a brilliant old school English writer says, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Like that is the best mindset I think to have. I'm not an optimist. I'm not a pessimist. But my, the reality is Jesus has risen from the dead. I'm a Jesusist. I'm a resurrectionist. Whatever you want to call it. He's like it's not about me being pessimistic, it's not about me being optimistic. It's about knowing that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. This is where the power lies. So even though we're pressed down, we're not crushed. Even though we're perplexed, we're not in despair. And I love some of these words like perplexed. It's okay to have questions. It's okay okay to have questions you might never get answers for. It's okay to look at Christianity and say, there's some questions I have that are just rubbing me the wrong way, that are frustrating me. Listen, you might be perplexed, but you're not in despair. The the idea is, he goes, You're struck down, but you're not forsaken. That's the same word, forsaken, same word used to describe Jesus on the cross. When he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Paul is saying Jesus was forsaken on the cross so that you and I don't have to be forsaken. So Jesus was forsaken, but we're not forsaken. Even though it's difficult, we have to look at the cross and be reminded of the truth that because Jesus was forsaken on that cross that day, you and I don't have to be forsaken. Meaning, no matter what affliction or, or anything you might go through, it's not the end. It's not over yet. Even though we're pressed, we're not struck down. We're not, it's not over yet. We're not crushed here. See, listen, there is power through weakness. I want you to think about the jars of clay analogy. Because it's like, once this, like this empty vessel, this char of clay, once it's, it's pressed down or cracked, it's going to reveal some things. If you think about like a jar that's been cracked, he said like, there's going to be things that come out. You know, it's when you go through pressure, the light of the gospel can shine. It's when you get cracked or when you kind of get struck down, that's an opportunity for the gospel to be made known. If you guys remember the story in Judges chapter 7, remember the story of Gideon? Gideon was like one of the most famous crazy stories. The nation of Israel is under attack from the Midianites. There's 145,000 Midians trying to attack the nation of Israel. There's Gideon with like 32,000 men or whatever it is. They're like, us 32,000 versus 145,000. God's like, you have too many people. Shorten the army. So Gideon's like, okay, whoever wants to go home can go home. And so like 22,000 leave. They only have like 10,000 left. And then Gideon's like, let's just drink from this river. And whoever drank and not, was not ready for battle went home. Basically, Gideon has 300 men left. And so the through 300 versus 145,000 midnight And if you remember how the story goes, God says, listen, I want you to go around them at night, bring a trumpet and bring a jar of clay, but with a torch inside. And on my word, you're going to shout, and you're going to break this jar of clay. You're going to break this vessel, and the light's going to shine. They do that. They break the jar. The light shines behind it. And the people see that and don't think it's 300 men. They probably think it's 300 torches or 300 divisions. They freak out. They say they're among us. They begin to kill each other, and they die. And the idea behind that, though, is the jar needed to be cracked for the light to shine and for the enemy to fail. And so often, that's how it works in our Christian life, that once we're cracked, once we're pressed down, that's when the light of Jesus can shine, and that's when we can defeat the enemy. Me. Meaning, I love how one author put it. He, he said the best. He says, the Lord allows us to go through times of breaking so that those around us might see his reality shining. The Lord allows us to go through these times of breaking so that people might see the light of Jesus shining. You see, Paul goes, we're these jars of clay, and you know what? We're cracked. We're broken. But it's not, it's not over yet. This is when the light of Jesus can be seen in a greater way. And this is what we have, our hope. There's power through weakness. Paul points out this idea, again, of power through weakness. Number two is this. He talks about life through death. Life through death. Would you keep reading verse 10? Verse 10, Paul says, always, listen, we're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Life through death. Paul says it like three different ways. We're always caring about in our bodies the death of Jesus, so that there might be life in you. Like, Paul's like, we're constantly giving ourselves over to death for your life. What is he saying? Um, Paul said this also in 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-one. Paul said simply this phrase, I die daily. That the Christian life is a life of dying to self. That when it comes to following Jesus, there will be death to self. Like, welcome to the exchange. Welcome to following Jesus, right? Like, it's not the most exciting thing when you hear that. But this is the—that's what it means to follow Jesus. It means there will be death to self. Paul is saying, I'm constantly sacrificing, like, my life, my will. I'm constantly dying to self so that there might be life in you. Listen, if you are a parent or just a friend in general, you know what this is like. You know, like, if you love someone, you realize, I, there has to be death to myself for there to be life in them. Meaning, you know what, I'll sacrifice what I want, my will, my desires, things that I would normally choose for the sake of their spiritual growth in life. Like, sometimes we have to go, I'll sacrifice my opinion and my thoughts for the sake of you and your spiritual life and your vitality. Paul is describing what happens so often in our life that when they're suffering in the name of Jesus, for Jesus' sake, it leads so often to people's salvation. Like, you and I might know this or experience this. You notice, like, to wake up early and serve. You notice, know like to be praying for someone, that they might come to know Jesus. You know what it's like to sacrifice your time, your energy, your money to give to the kingdom, to be part of the kingdom. In a sense, there's like death to self, so there might be life in someone else. I'm going to sacrifice what I want so there might be life in someone else. Uh, one pastor said it the best. He says, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. If we want to see God do a great work, it's going to cost us something. Time, energy, money. The idea is that there's death to self. There's death to what I want. There's death to my ways for the sake of life and others. Paul is saying, we want, we want Jesus. We want Jesus to be seen on you. We want you to come to know Jesus. Our sacrifice, our death to ourself, we're always caring about the death of Jesus. Why? So there might be life in you. Like, look how he says it in verse 12 again. Verse 12 is just so simple, so profound. He says, so death is at work in us, but life in you. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen those like Christian promises cards, like you wake up in the morning, like, oh, what's a a Bible verse for today? And it's like, God works all things together for good. You're like, oh, that's my verse for today. Like, I think this should be one of those Christian promises where you like wake up and read it. It's like, death is at work in us and life in you. Like, there's something about reading these verses we need to read more often. Like, wait a second, part of the Christian life means there's gonna be death to self, so there can be life in others? I'm going to give things up. I'm going to sacrifice so that other people might live. Other people might come to know Jesus. Paul is saying, listen, this is a paradox, but this is how it works. There's death in us, but life in you. Life comes through death. Let me just say it this way too. I'm so thankful for all the men and women who've gone before me, who lived before me, who sacrificed so much so I could be up here preaching freely to you. I'm so thankful for those who've taken time throughout the centuries— to copy the word of God, to print the word of God, to spread the word of God. They've given up their life. Some of them have been burned alive. They've watched their kids be murdered in front of them. I'm saying there has been so much death in the name for, against Christians, against the name of Jesus, so that you and I could live. Like, people have sacrificed so much so we can have this book in front of us. I'm so incredibly thankful for that. You know, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, said this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs, the seed of the church. All of those who've given their life years and years ago for the gospel of Jesus is what births the church, is why we're here today. Paul's like, there's death in us, but life in you. The gospel is Jesus died so you and I could live. He took on death, he took on sin, he took on hell so that you and I could live. Paul says we carry that theme, death in us, life in you. Death is at work in us, life in you. Again I want to I want to challenge you guys cuz You know, I think the Christian journey is one where you say, I want there to be Jesus. I want Jesus to be birthed in this person. I want them to come to know Christ. Well, that might mean, again, dying to self. It's John the Baptist who says, you know what? He must increase and I must decrease. I really think the Christian life, a big part of the Christian life is saying, I'm going to sacrifice some things for the sake of others coming to know and trust and believe in Christ. And again, there have been so many who sacrificed a lot for me in my Christian journey. There's so many who've who've done a lot and sacrificed a lot for you and your faith. And I'd say, this is the mentality want to carry on. This is the mantle we want to carry on. Death in us, life in you. That we might be able to give up and sacrifice for the sake of others coming to know Christ. Listen, there's power through weakness. There's life through death. Amen? These are some of the paradoxes the Bible communicates. You'll never see life. And think about this. Think about this. This is just a true fact. What did you guys eat last night? I don't know if you had like, we had like a, a cow, we had like sushi, I think. Like think about the things we had, like fish, cow, chicken, like their death. Oh, my life, right? Like this is just how life works. Like things die so there can be life. You think about a seed when it's planted into the ground, the, the shell of the seed dies so there can be spring up new life. I mean, this is just a biblical principle. There's life because it comes through death. And this is how the church grows. This is how the gospel spreads. For those who are willing to make sacrifices, and this is not just someone else's call, this is all of our call. Amen? Life through death. Number three is this, and this is very interesting. We're going to see speaking through believing. I want to I see Paul's point here. Speaking through believing. Let's just stay with the text. He says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak. "'Knowing that he who has raised the Lord Jesus "'will get, uh, will raise us also with Jesus "'and bring us with you into his presence. "'For it is all for your sake.' So that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Speaking through believing. Please stay with me on this one. This is one of those verses that can be abused and even neglected in the Christian church. And I don't want this to get lost. Paul uses something very interesting. Paul says, I believe, therefore I spoke. Paul's quoting from Psalm 116. In Psalm 116, verse 10, the author says that. I believe, therefore I spoke. I want you to understand something biblically about this. Paul's making a point, but there's also a principle here. So a lot of times in scriptures, you'll you'll see the main point, but you'll see a principle behind this. So stay with me. What's the point? Paul's pulling up Psalm 116. Only Paul, I think Paul can do this. Paul knows the word of God so well that he pulls out the perfect Psalm to describe his scenario. Because in Psalm 116, the author is being afflicted, the author, the author was suffering, and yet he speaks of resurrection. Paul's being afflicted, he's suffering, and yet he speaks of resurrection. Look at verse 14. Because we also believe that we'll be raised up with Jesus, and not just us, but you also, in his presence. And Paul's pulling up the psalm to say, even though we're afflicted, even though our faith is being tested, we believe, therefore we speak. And then he speaks of the resurrection. So just in case you're still confused, I'm going to throw the verses up here. Psalm 116, verse 8. Here's the context that Paul pulls it from, just so you can see this. Listen to this. Uh, The author in Psalm 116 says, For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living, resurrection. I believe, therefore I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. This is what the psalmist is saying. The psalmist is like, I am greatly afflicted. I'm going through it but you know what? I believe I'll walk before the Lord, the presence of the Lord. I believe in resurrection. I believe that I'll be with the Lord. You've delivered my soul from death. The author speaks of like a pain and suffering and yet resurrection. Paul, in a similar way, in a perfect way, says, you know what? I relate to that, that author. Just like for me, I'm afflicted in every way. I'm, I'm, I'm being, you know, pressed down but not destroyed. My soul, I'm, I'm afflicted it's not over. Paul is saying, I too believe in the resurrection. I too look forward to the resurrection. So the point that I want us to see, as Paul goes, even though my faith is being tested, I so believe in the resurrection. I'm going to speak of the resurrection and not just me being with Jesus, but you also be with Jesus. Paul's like, my faith, my faith reminds me of this truth that I will rise again, that this is not the end, that I will see Jesus, and that you too will be with us in his presence. Now, that's you could say is the point, that Paul is perfectly pulling this out, using it to his context, but I think the author is doing something really well. And here's the idea. Our words are powerful. Our words are incredibly powerful. I think that this text can definitely be abused because some people will say, I believe, therefore I spoke. And so they say, hey, whatever you believe, just speak it and it will happen. And maybe you've heard things like this. We call it like name it and claim it or blab it and grab it. If you just say it, man, it's going to happen, right? It's like, just say it. If you believe it, just say it and it's going to happen. And I think this can definitely be abused. But at the same time, I think this can be neglected. I think our words are incredibly powerful. I think we have to understand the power in our words. I think we have to understand like our words can shape our reality in many ways. And notice he says, I believe, therefore I spoke, meaning Jesus said it this way, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Like if you see someone speaking something, they're just really revealing their heart in the matter. You know, I want to I point out what the author of Hebrews says. I think this is so profound. In Hebrews 11, verse 3, the author of Hebrews says, by faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Please stay with me. He's saying by faith, we understand that God framed the world by his words. God said light and there was light. Remember that last week? Paul used the same idea. Like, there's power in the words of God. and There's power in, in our words, he's saying. Now, here's what I want to point out. He goes, by faith, God framed the world. I do believe in the same way our words frame our reality. Like if you're constantly around people who are without hope and toxic and negative and just spewing hate, you better believe that's going to be their reality. That's going to be their framework for the world. If you're around people who go, life is difficult, but I have hope, but God is faithful. God is good. God is loving. You better believe they're going to walk in the characteristics of that reality. I want you to understand that our words really do matter. I think we can almost downplay our words as Christians. I think we can say things about people, about our family members, oh, they're just this way. And I think our words have way more weight than we give them credit. I believe that, as Paul said, I believe, therefore I spoke. And he's referring to resurrection. There is something powerful about this for you and I. I believe that when you're going through suffering or trial, you say, you know what? This is really difficult. Like, I'm being, like, crushed. I'm being, like, pressed down. But you know what? It's not over. And I know that one day there will be resurrection, and this pain and suffering will come to an end. And I think that's exactly what Paul is doing. Paul believes so much in the resurrection. He goes, I believe, therefore I spoke. And then verse 14, he specifically describes the resurrection. He describes this grace being extended to more and more people so that God might be glorified and there might be thanksgiving. Paul's like, you know what? I know God's going to save more people. I know this grace will be extended. I know that I'm going to see Jesus and you're going to see Jesus with me and we're going to be in his presence. And I love this. It really is something about being around believers who so believe in the promise of God's word, they do speak and say, God, your word says this, so I'm going to cling to it. Your word says you are good even when my circumstances are not good. So you're good. And there's something really refreshing about being around people who believe and speak the word of God. I would love for us to embrace this a little bit more. One author says, to speak out words of faith in time of difficulty is so important to the life of believers. It's so important. In times of difficulty to speak out words of life, I believe, therefore I spoke. I love how G. Campbell Morgan, one old school preacher, said about this verse. He says, listen, that is one great secret of power and success in the Christian ministry. If you do not believe, shut your mouth. That is a word for young ministers. That's me. If you do not believe, do not talk. Well, he's like If there's more conviction in our beliefs, we see more conviction in the pulpit. We see more conviction in our lives. If there's more conviction in our hearts, we see more conviction in reality. He goes, listen, if you believe it, he goes, I believe it, therefore I spoke. I believe that I'd be with Jesus. See the resurrection of Jesus. Listen, speaking through believing. I don't want to hammer on this too much, but Paul's going through it. Guys, Paul's suffering, obviously. But yet he has to remind himself and speak about the resurrection. And there really is something profound about that. Next time you are suffering, speak about the resurrection. Meaning, just say, Jesus, this is difficult. I'm hard-pressed. I'm perplexed. I'm going through it. But you know what? I know that I will see you. And I know that your grace will be extended to more and more. Speaking through believing. I really do believe our words matter. And we got to be careful with what we say and how we, how we say it. Number four is this. Renewal through decay. Renewal through decay. This is what he's going to describe now. And I just want you to, just, just if you've been zoned out a little bit, just bring it back to verse 16. Listen to what he says. Verse 16. He says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasted away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. He goes, We don't lose heart. Why? Even though our outer self is wasting away, God is renewing the inner man day by day. We'll talk a lot more about this next week because Paul is going to talk about how we put off our body to put on a new body. Like, I can agree and I can attest to the fact, like, I understand I'm fairly young. I turn 33 next month. But I can tell you that I'm feeling the outer body decay. Like, I really do feel the effects of it. I feel like the outer man is wasting away. But this Paul's argument is, even though there's decay, the inward man's being renewed by, day by day. There's something so beautiful. If you've ever been around a believer suffering, f- suffering physically, and yet you see their hope, and you see the inward man being renewed day by day, you go, that, that could only be the Lord. I know some of you have seen that. I've seen that. People who I love dearly suffer and walk through it, and they go, but my hope's in Jesus. And even though this is difficult, I'm not destroyed. Listen, your outward man, as you, go, as you and I just go on through this journey of life, your outward man will decay more and more. But by the grace of God and the Spirit of God, your inward man will be renewed day by day. It's sad when you see people decay outwardly and inwardly. I would love to be a people, like like fine wine in a sense, where like, oh, we get better with age. Like, yes, but like inwardly, like what God does with us inwardly. You could say, even though my outward man's perishing, God, you're renewing my inward man day by day. Paul Barrett said this, what does day by day being renewed mean? He says, God is creating within our inner nature a new person out of the old so that when it is finished, it will be completely new. So God is just trying to create a, a new person out of the old. He's renewing the inward man even though the outward man is perishing, the outward man is decaying. Listen to what John Piper says about this. It's so profound because it means that God does not waste our suffering. It means that God does not waste our pain. Listen to how he puts this. He says, this means, listen, this means that the decaying of his body was not meaningless. The pain and pressure and frustration were not happening in vain. They were not vanishing into a black hole of pointless suffering. Instead, this suffering was producing for him an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison When he is hurting, he fixes his eyes, not on how heavy the hurt is, but on how heavy the glory will be because of the hurt. God is not going to waste that suffering. God will use that pressure to renew the inward man day by day. See, Paul begins this chapter with, we do not lose heart, and he ends with, we do not lose heart. And he he gives reasons why we don't lose heart. And I just want to close out with verse 17 and 18. Here's why we don't lose heart, church. Why don't we lose heart? Look at verse 17. Here's why. He says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal or temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We don't lose heart. God, even though our outward body is wasted away, God is renewing the inward man day by day. How? He goes, as we look to the things that are unseen. God brings renewal as you look to the things that are unseen. I, I got to talk about this. Like, let's think about this. When you and I look at the things that are seen, I lose heart. Like, when my phone goes off and I get, like, a new, like, application, like, new, like, a notification that something else happened in the world or some world leader said some comment, usually when I look at the things that are seen, I lose heart. Like, it's easy to look around at the things that are seen, and we all lose heart. But Paul's saying we don't lose heart because we're not looking at the things that are seen, we're looking at the things that are unseen. See, the world might lose heart. People might lose heart because they're looking at the physical in front of them, but we don't lose heart because we're looking at the things that are unseen. Church, we need to look more at the things that are unseen. Paul actually breaks this down for us, and I'll put it up here. Why don't we lose heart? Why don't we lose heart? Notice how he puts it. He goes, it's momentary affliction, it's light affliction, there's an eternal weight of glory, and the unseen eternal glory to come. Like, look at this. Let's break this down. We don't lose heart. Why? He goes, this is a light affliction. Like, even if you're diagnosed with something and suffer for the rest of your life. I mean, you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years, whatever it is on this world. He goes, it's, he goes, it's momentary compared to eternity. Like 80 years of suffering is just like a little speck, a little dot compared just to eternity ahead. He calls it momentary affliction. I, when I'm suffering, it never feels like momentary. Like whenever I'm suffering, it feels like this is forever and this will never end and I'm gonna die, right? Like whenever I'm suffering, like, like affliction, feels way, way longer than momentary. But if you have eternity in mind, it's, it's truly momentary. If I can view suffering in light of eternity, I realize, oh my gosh, this is just for a moment. And then he says, this light, this light momentary affliction, this light affliction. Listen, if Paul calls what he goes through light, I am the biggest wimp ever, right? Paul calls his his affliction light momentary affliction. I could never call what Paul went through in my life light. Like, I'm usually having a bad week just because they got my coffee order wrong, right? Like, my affliction is usually very, very minor. Like, why is your week so bad? I don't know. They said my name wrong. Like, it's, so, it's so ridiculous, right? It's so ridiculous. But when you look at Paul's affliction, you go, how does he call this light? In 1 Corinthians 11, there's a list of everything Paul went through, or 2 Corinthians 11. We'll get to this later. But listen to what Paul went through. Here's some of the things. He names it. He goes, stripes, prisons, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, perils of waters, uh, robbers, Perils of my own countrymen, perils of Gentiles. No one says perils anymore, but he does. Perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness. Often that's the worst one. In hunger and thirst and fastings, often and cold and nakedness are light, momentary affliction. I could never call that light, momentary affliction. Paul's like everything I'm going through. This is light compared to the eternal weight of glory. When I look at what I'm suffering, what I'm going through, what I'm walking through, but I know the glory ahead, what God has done, what God is doing, I'll be in his presence where there's fullness of joy. There'll be no more tears, no more suffering, no more disease, no more cancer, no more pain, no more, no more any of that, no more evil, no, no more any of that. Wait, this is a light momentary affliction in light of the eternal weight of glory. Paul has such a unique mindset. He was compared to eternity. This is easy. It's light, momentary affliction. It doesn't feel easy ever in the moment. But when I have eternity in mind, it changes everything. Listen, I really think the way you and I view what we see versus what we don't see really matters. I was talking to someone before church about this idea. He's like, someone's been talking to me. He said, someone's been talking about having an eternal mindset. I have no idea what that means. And he goes, it wasn't until this week when I was talking to a coworker. And the reality that my coworker who doesn't believe in Jesus could be possibly cut off from God in hell forever—it just sat in my heart. I realized eternity in mind means I have to be a part of God's mission to rescue, to redeem the lost, like help people, you know, come to know Jesus. Like keeping eternity in mind means I'm a part of something much bigger than just my nine-to-five job. You know, again, Paul's secret here is in verse 18. He goes again. He says, verse 18: We look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things That are unseen are eternal. Paul's like, again, what we see, that's temporary. What we don't see, that's eternal. What you and I see right now, all of this will be gone. Everything. He goes, what you and I see, this is temporary. It's the unseen things that last forever, the unseen things that keep going on and on. That true reality is not what we see with the eye, it's the spiritual eye. That true reality are those things that are unseen. And I want us to really get this. I would love for us to give ourselves over to this. I think to any successful Christian life, meaning they live for Jesus, they did their life well, they did family well, they just followed the Lord, and like they really just followed Jesus well for their their life. Those people I know had a great eternal mindset. Like there's this eternal mindset, keeping heaven in perspective, helped them do their day-to-day life much better. I think this is what it says about Abraham in the book of Hebrews. Abraham had this eternal mindset, this heavenly mindset. Hebrews 11 10 says Abraham waited for the city which has foundations whose builder and maker is God Abraham very wealthy man had 300 hired servants he had a lot of lands Abraham was incredibly wealthy had, had a lot of things going for him Abraham was not looking for the city that he would build but he was looking for a city that was in heaven whose builder and maker is God I really do believe like success in our Christian lives comes from not looking at the things that are seen but looking at the things that are unseen how can all of us better engage in the things that are unseen? I want us to engage more in the things that go unseen, the spiritual realm, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. When you realize that this world is truly fading away, that everyone comes and goes, you realize, I need to start investing in eternal things and things that go unseen. I need to lay up my treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves can't break in and steal. I need to live for heavenly things. I need to store my treasure in heaven. And when you get around believers who realize this, they go, oh my gosh, I've been living for this world my whole life. I've been living for things seen my whole life. And it kind of hits them. All of this will be for nothing if it's not done for Jesus. If I'm not storing up my treasure in heaven. That's why Jesus says, lay up your treasure in heaven. You know, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So we want to better engage in the things unseen. Amen? As followers of Jesus, we want to engage, we have to engage in what goes unseen. There are things around us. I just, it's crazy to think this. If God right now could open our eyes to all the things we don't see. That unseen realm, that unseen spiritual realm? What would we see? And my my point with that is, like, how do we actually engage in that through prayer, through worship, through giving, through serving, through proclaiming the gospel of Jesus? How do we engage in the things unseen by doing those spiritual things that will go on forever? Let me just end with this verse. It's Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, where Paul writes, if you have been raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of the earth. Here's the thing. Seek those things which are above. If you've been raised with Christ, if you've been born again, seek the things which are above. Seek the things which are above. If you've been born again, seek the things which are above. Set your mind on things above, not on the things of this earth. This is the call for you and I. that though we suffer, there's an eternal weight of glory. Though our outward man is perishing, God is renewing us day by day. That the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. We will live for the things that are unseen. Amen?